Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Welcome to Book Talk Podcast. This is the third section of Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield. Katie, I mean, so much happened in this uh, section. I don't know how you're possibly going to summarize all of it. I don't know either, but I'm going to start with saying nothing happened and that's it. Um, (laughs) To recap, really nothing has changed in our circumstances, but things are getting significantly worse in both areas. So on dry land in present day, we're hearing it from Mary's point of view. Leah seems maybe okay with Mary kind of in the beginning. They have a little moment where it seems like maybe they could reconcile, but it's very quickly gone. And then Leah is turning into something else. She's getting worse very quickly. Her skin is changing. Salt water is coming out of her eyes, her mouth. She refuses to go to the doctor. And when Mary calls to get a little bit more help, she finds out the center is actually closed. That gives us an ominous overview for the next or feeling not overview but overture maybe for leah's section things are getting worse underwater as well yelka is starting to hear voices leah is acting like a peacemaker between matea and her but they're all quickly losing grip on reality on normalcy on why they're there and what happened at the very end matteo seems to get it a little bit where he's like doesn't it seem just a little bit suspicious that we have plenty of food, that the comms went out before the system broke down. Doesn't it seem like maybe this is what we're researching? So the creepy undertones are increasing, but really overall, Leah is still sick on land and underwater, nothing big has happened. And that's it. That's where we're at. I found the section boring. I'm bored with this book. I get it. They love each other and they're both falling apart in their own way. And things on the submarine are bad. And um, great. Okay. I get it. I agree. I think that this would be a book that would be really enjoyable to read over a weekend very quickly. Like I could read this book in a day or two and it's really short and fast to read. Like The whole book is like what, 270 pages or something like that. It's very quick. So I feel like it would be a really good book to sit down and read in a setting or two when you are maybe on a plane or bored. And then I feel like it would be okay to read it. I feel like it's because it's so short and fast, but nothing is happening. It's just too much to spread out. I think over time, like we're doing it with this because there isn't enough to dissect in the sections. I do feel like because of that, this last part, the ending is about to be when things get really crazy. And I just books like that frustrate me because I'm like, we did so much buildup for these last 30 pages. Why? Right. The perfect length for this book, uh, in my mind, is like a New Yorker article where we're flashing back and forth, but it's essentially like 20 pages. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. I also feel like the book I just finished last time, one of the books, the fantasy book was like this, where there was so much buildup and nothing was happening. But the last section was like jaw droppingly good. And I'm like, oh, that's how it gets the four and five star ratings, because that last section you were wanting so badly for something to happen that no matter what happened, as long as it was dramatic, you were going to be bought into it. And I'm hoping that's what happened at this book. But I agree. It's just taking a long time to – and it's very repetitive. Like, yes, Leah is throwing up salt water. Okay. I don't – every other page, that's what we're doing. Right. And also, there are things that are happening, but we don't know what they are because we're stuck in the characters' heads. 
And I get that that is partially to make us feel disoriented, but like it'd be much more interesting if we're flashing two people at the center who are trying to figure out what to say or covering their tracks or even to like Mateo and Jelka to see what they're doing, if they're alive, how they're hanging in there. But again, it's like it's so focused on their perspective and they have no idea what's going on that then it makes us feel, I think, left out of the key players. Because clearly there's a lot happening, at least with the center, that we are not aware of. That's such a good point. This would be so much, so much more interesting and so much more dramatic if we knew what was going on with the center. If we knew that they were sending them down there on purpose and then we would feel that same sense of urgency and like feel bad for Leah and Yelka and Matteo being down there. We'd be like, you guys, it's okay. You're going to make it out alive. Because the thing is, they've already ruined that part of it. We already know Leah survives it. So there would be nothing lost by saying that it was on purpose in the beginning because you would still see how crazy they're going until they figure it out. Something is missing, like that third perspective. I think you're right. Even if Yelka's sister had reached out earlier and there was this competing experience of what Yelka was experiencing or what she was saying that she could then bring to Leah and they could piece it together and maybe they could go after the center as a group or something else, another layer of this, I feel like we're just missing while we're lost inside Leah and Mary's head. Oh, and I'm still clearly getting their names mixed up, which is embarrassing for me, but here we are. Did you? I'm not good with names, as we know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't even notice it. So I don't know what that says about me paying attention to this right now. I do enjoy that the stories are <laughs> tracking at the same level. Like they're both in the beginning kind of calm, kind of trying to figure it out. And then as things are getting progressively worse, the stories are moving in parallel. So it's getting worse underwater. Leah's getting worse on land. So the entire suspense is building on both sections. So they're kind of really moving at the same level, which I do enjoy. And I feel like it's creating a very creepy and suspenseful undertone. It's just like we didn't need this entire section to gain what we gained in the first two sections. That's really the issue. Right. I also have a sense that this is going to be one of those books that's going to wrap up more metaphorically and less literally. That's my guess. I think we're not actually going to be as satisfied with the ending as we're hoping. I just want to prepare you that I will be extremely upset if this is some metaphorical bullshit ending and not some <laughs> actual underwater drama. Upset. I'll be upset. <laughs> if I had to guess right now today, I'm going to guess that like Leah is turning into an octopus or something and Miri's going to come into the bathroom and she's going to be like a fish in the bathtub and that's going to be the end. Okay, but what do you predict is going to happen with the center? Like, do you think it's just going to, nothing else is really going to happen? You think we're never nothing? Gonna know. Yeah, I don't think we're going to know. I will give this book a one out of five if that happens. I think they put them through some weird experiment. There's going to be a weird result, and it's all just sort of going to be like a metaphor. I will be so upset. I just, I cannot if that is what happens. Because I just need some sort of drama to pull it together. Even if there is a metaphor, I need... Like the center to have something to pull it together. Like if it's all metaphorical, I don't know. Or if nothing else happens, if we don't get like some sense of justice for the center or some connection between Yelka and her, like, I don't know. I hope something happens, but I agree. I'm going to have to finish it today because I need to know. Same, same. It reminds me of, I just watched the, the um, best picture nominee movie, Women Talking. And in the beginning, it basically says like on the screen that what follows is like an act of female imagination. 
And it's sort of like loosely based on this book that covered some real events. But basically, this whole thing is like an imagined reaction of these Mennonite women um, and the conversations that they would have about how to handle the abuse that they've been suffering. Anyways, at some point, you're just like, oh, none of this is like tethered to reality. This is essentially all a metaphor. I'm like watching an abstraction on abuse and the patriarchy and subjugation and I feel like that's what this book is this is like an abstraction on deep love through incredible loss and how you can be in a relationship with very different people even though it's exactly the same person if that's what's happening here then I agree put it in a New Yorker article (laughs) also Jared's me to watch women talking last night I was gonna watch it tonight do you think it was good you would hate it, Katie. Oh my God. Why are you all so bad at recommending things to me? It's really rude. Katie, you like, would are hate Are you trying it. to traumatize me? Why? Oh my God. It's really you would be so, you would be ripping your eyeballs out. You'd be so bored. <sighs> that is like how I feel about every Oscars movie. <sighs> Hot take. Sorry about it. Well, no, it's fine. I watched all the best picture nominees. I try and do that every year. This year I succeeded. There are definitely plot heavy best picture nominees like top gun where you're like all they're doing is flying planes around and there's all this there's all this plot and no like deepness women talking right. is like all deep no plot <sighs> are the oscars tonight yeah okay i'm obviously well prepared anyways <laughs> that was a little tangent top of mind yeah, I think we could talk a lot about their experience of grief and, like you said, loving different people throughout a long relationship and how people change. And you can decide whether you know, you're know you loving them through that, especially if she's changing into a fish. I think that will require some um, thought. But I agree. If, I hope something happens in this last section, I think, is the summary. There were a couple of good moments or monologues about some deeper meanings in life did you want to talk about the part where they're talking about how finite life is how many cups of coffee you have left how understanding how long things are going to go on could be helpful or harmful sure I really liked this part on page 156 where she says to stamp a limit on even the most tedious of things the number of times you have left to buy a coffee the number of times you will defrost the fridge is to acknowledge reality in a way that amounts to torture. In truth, we will only perform any action a certain number of times and to know that can never be helpful. There is, in my opinion, no use in demanding to know the number in demanding to know upon waking the number of boxes to be ticked off every single day. After all, why would it help to be shown the mathematics of things when instead we could simply imagine that whatever time we have is limitless? Were you going to tell us what you thought about that? Or are you just going to read it and look at me deeply? <laughs> I was just going to read it and look at you and think, oh, um, no, I think it's a it's something that this is the essential human condition, right? Is that like we're all finite and we're all going to die and there's only a certain number of days left. And at the same time, thinking about that just fucks you up completely and takes away your ability to enjoy those, you know, 500 cups of coffee you have left or 50 summers that you have left it's like realizing that things are finite somehow sucks the like joy and love out of life and yet it's just like ever-present reality it's just the duality I think of being a human being aware of our own death that's coming 
That is also how I think about it, right? It sucks the joy out of it to think about how many times you might have left to do something, how many moments of pure happiness you have left or cups of coffee or lazy mornings or summers or trips or whatever it is. But I think some people think of it kind of the opposite, like understanding that it's finite is what gives them the joy in the mundane things, what makes it joyful to make a cup of coffee in the morning or to cook the same pasta you've cooked a hundred times is the fact that you only get so many times. But I agree. When she's talking about the boxes to be ticked off, to me, it feels like it's sucking the joy out of it to just feel like you're counting down the minutes when you can just not think about it and enjoy the act of living and the act of being here while we are here as much as you can. Well, and the reality is like, if there's no way of knowing how many cups of coffee, like you can plan for a long, rich life, which I think Leah and Miri did plan for being together forever for building this beautiful life together and still something unexpected happens that disrupts that whole plan and everything that you thought you had infinite um, chances to, or even like 80, 90 years to accomplish and experience can be changed kind of instantly. And I think they're both just dealing with that jarring reality. Yeah, I feel that. I think sometimes you think you can have it all under, all under control. Like Mary was like, this is what will happen. You'll come back and here's the plan A to Z. Here's what we're going to do. And life is going to be fine and normal. And then something can come along and all of a sudden you're, she's not finishing the project at work. She's not even who she is anymore. She doesn't have her same friends like Miri specifically. She's not even the one who disappeared, but her life has been completely turned upside down. And I think we always, you know, it's easier to think that you have more control over what's going to happen than you do. Uh, I feel bad for them. I, I love that they are in love and that they have this beautiful love story. And also it's so painful that it's gone. Yeah. And what is Mary going to do? Like how long is she going to care for Leah and feed her salt water and be, you know, living this life that is no longer hers and that she's not getting any joy out of either. Well, until she turns into a mermaid, that's how long she's going to do it. An octopus. Yeah. A mermaid, a fish, an aquatic (laughs) creature. Something. Something's happening. She's growing scales. Her chin her skin is changing color. Like things are morphing. Salt water is literally just pouring out of her. This girl is salt water. But she's still communicating. So interesting. Well, let's finish this book, Katie. Let's do it. Katie, you didn't read anything? Okay. Whoa. Well, I didn't finish anything. That was so accusatory. Oh. Um, I read Our Wives of the you, Sea. You literally just said. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That is my fault. I did say that, but I didn't mean it. I just meant I didn't finish anything. I obviously read this book, and then I'm about a third of the way through Demon Copperhead, which is a 600-page book. So, you know, if it was a normal-length book, I would be almost done, but I'm not. I am loving it, though. It is from the perspective of Demon, who is a young child. He's in elementary school. I think he's about 10. I don't know if we know his exact age, but he is currently in a foster home, and it's just about his life growing up in Appalachia. His mother is a drug addict. He has a horrible stepdad. He's in and out of foster care, and it's really just him growing up and a 
entire memoir, really, I guess, fake memoir. What is that? I don't even know. A novel from his point of view is what I'm trying to say about how this pervasive poverty and how it affects every aspect of his life. And it's just, the writing is amazing. It's from his perspective. So you're getting this like 10 year old's way of thinking, but he's, you're constantly inside his head. It's, it's amazing. I really am loving it so far, but I want to take my time reading it. I'm not trying to rush through it because I feel like it's going to be one of those books I will think about for a really long time. Oh, that's so nice. Um, okay. I'm still working my way through bear town. It's still just like hockey, hockey, hockey. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I get it. Everybody plays hockey in this town and everybody loves hockey. Great. Um, and there's so many characters I need again, like a family tree, a map, a roster. I need Mm -hmm. some way of keeping track of all these people, but whatever. Every, every new page, it's like, oh, and here's another person in the town and here's how much they care about hockey. But I believe you're you, gonna the get plot there. is coming. It's gonna be more is coming. I'm gonna. Don't get you feel there. like you're just getting a lovely um, story I'm... told to you, though? No, not yet. <laughs> I'm like, how am I? How am I a good seventy-five pages in? And at this point, we know that Soon is getting fired. Soon knows that Soon is getting fired, and yet Soon has not been fired yet. I'm like, guys, come on! Like, it's still the same morning. Like, we have not progressed through time at all. It's crazy. You're I only 75 pages my then. slight... My, only 75 pages. Okay. You can do um, it. My other, my other issue with Frederick Backman's writing is that he's always just like, and this is about life. And this is a metaphor for how towns are just like people in that da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, he really wants to, like, write motivational posters in addition to writing a novel. And that's fine, but it's it's a choice. I remember this I with Anxious it. People. I didn't read Anxious People, and I couldn't get into it. So this is my only Frederick Backman experience. And I don't know. It's hard when you finish a book and you have, like, a, a good experience reading the overall book to remember how you felt in the beginning of it. So I don't know if I was annoyed in the beginning and then I got hooked halfway through and then I read that and the second one right in a row. So I don't know if that's what happened. And I was also bored in the beginning. Um, but I started to really love the way that he was talking in there. But I do feel like he becomes a little uh, a little motivational speaker-ish at the end of kind of each section. Right. He's like, and then that was it. She was never the same. You're like, yeah, I gathered that okay. from what happened to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also at one point ended up on the subway without a book. So I downloaded Ann Tyler's French braid for my Kindle, which is about um, this. Well, so far, I don't really know what it's about because I didn't read any descriptions. I just know that this woman um, went to visit her boyfriend's parents. Her boyfriend and his parents have like a very healthy, normal relationship and her and her family clearly don't. And her family is like not close with their extended family network either. And I'm guessing we're going to go from there. Um, It's a very easy read. I love a family drama. I also feel like every time I watch my horrible dating shows like Love Island and The Bachelor, they're always like, ooh, family is so important. Mm, You're so close to your family. Mm, So important. And not all of us are. And our families are not close to our families. So it's an interesting like dichotomy putting those two things next to each other. I'm assuming that's the braid. It's going to be her family, his family, and the two of them. That's what we're braiding. Mm, love that. Katie can see my I beautiful love... hand, hand braiding motions. 
Lovely. Truly lovely. I really like Ann Tyler's books for that reason. She's talking about something relatively, quote unquote, simple or mundane or, quote unquote, normal, but in a very like intimate way. But it's also very easy to read. It's not too intellectualized or too hard to get into. It's just like very easy to get into the deeper meaning of it because you're not spending so much time parsing through it. I really like her. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'll let you know mm. how it goes. I'm hoping to finish this book by the time you come asking for it back in a week. You better hurry up. <laughs> Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. 